Well, if I could share the unofficial, untold story of St. Patrick. Uh, this story is told by, embellished by, and slightly made up by Steve Erickson. Well, St. Patrick was born in 385 AD in Roman Britannia, which is today Scotland. At the age of 16, he stood a whopping two and a half feet tall and never grew any taller, although his beard grew super long and he always wore a pointy hat. He was captured by Irish pirates and sold into slavery in Ireland, at which point he was forced to make shoes and gather gold together. At some points, he would hide some for himself calling them his lucky charms and hiding them at his rainbow bridge. He escaped slavery and made his way back to home as a new man with a renewed faith. Once home, he kind of had a life change and he became a priest and he made a decision to go back to the land of his captors. And once he did just that, got some training, went back, he was responsible for the planting of hundreds of churches and hundreds of shamrocks. He sought to cleanse the land of its ways. It was a rough town. It was a rough land. He sought to cleanse it of its ways and all of its snakes. He is known as the Apostle of Ireland. He never was actually made an official saint uh, by the way that the Catholic Church does, but he is known as the Apostle of Ireland, and they've adopted the name St. Patrick. He died on March 17th, 461, and his last words were to have a beer on him and dye everything green. If you aren't troubled by my version of St. Patrick, you should be. You should be troubled by this story. It's a hot mess of some truth, some fantasy, some myth, and a little touch of Marvel fan fiction for those who picked up on it. I do want to highlight real quick just to clarify some of the things that are true about St. Patrick. He was born 385 A.D. in Roman Britannia, modern-day Scotland. At age 16, he was uh, captured by Irish pirates and, and sold into slavery in Ireland. Uh, he did escape that slavery, and, and the, the experience so changed him that when he went home, he sought to learn more about his faith, and he became a priest, and he wanted to specifically go back to the land of his captors. And he went back there preaching the gospel, and he brought about amazing life change. And while the story about the snakes is, is fictional, is myth, the story about wanting to change the culture of the land is 100% true. And he did that by sharing the gospel, by sharing the story of Jesus with individuals, by planting churches. And he did plant hundreds of churches. And he dedicated his life, and he truly did, did become known as the Apostle of Ireland. Uh, he never was actually made a saint by the Catholic Church, but he did die on March 17th, and it, it is part of the inspiration what we celebrate on St. Patrick's Day. While there have been many tweaks and changes, as you can see, depending on how you celebrated last night or how you saw others celebrate, but that's the story of St. Patrick. Have you ever been troubled by the story of Jesus? I think sometimes the story of Jesus gets a little mixed up and we end up with this story that I just shared of St. Patrick. And we're not quite sure what's truth, what's myth, what's fantasy. And I think it leads us to this point where either we're troubled by the story of Jesus because we're not sure what to believe or we're troubled by the story of Jesus because we know what to believe. We're just not sure we're ready to take the steps that that calls us to take. If it is true, what does that mean for my life? So either we're troubled by it because we don't know what's true, or we're not ready to take the steps of response if it is true. Many of us have doubts about this. Maybe you've seen people say goodbye to their faith because of their doubts regarding Jesus. Or, or they're not willing to, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior because they're, just, they're troubled by his story. Well, this morning I want to address that. 
we're going to talk about a few questions regarding Jesus. And, and if this is right, hitting right where you're at in your journey, first of all, I'm glad you're here. Um, I, I don't uh, think we're going to hit every single question you have, but hopefully we can hit on some main ones and kind of encourage you to press on and investigating more about who Jesus is. If you already know the truth about who Jesus is, I pray this is one, an encouragement to you, uh, but also maybe this is uh, giving you some tools to help engage with others who are in your life who may be asking some of these questions. But one of the first questions I want to uh, look at as we look at this, uh, uh, this in this heart of uh, by faith, what, what doubts have caused people to either say goodbye to their faith or not even step into faith within Jesus at all? I think one of the questions that we see uh, recently is, did Jesus really exist? <laughs> did Jesus really exist? See, our culture is overflowing with various myths and characters and storylines, and there's multiple takes on some of these stories, and on the same character can have all these different stories about what their life was and how do we know what is true, and we still see this today. If you're a fan of, of comics, you see this between Marvel and DC, where they're always borrowing from each other. You can look at uh, pretty much any superhero, and most likely the other big franchise has a counterpart where they're borrowing from each other's stories and, and they're mixing the storylines. Uh, the, the first Justice League, uh, this team that came together was in 1960. And surprise, surprise, 1963, we have Marvel's Avengers, where you see this mix of storylines coming together. And we have the, the, it's common to find those counterparts. And you, you look back, take the same kind of mindset, look back to... to uh, mythical Greek gods and Roman counterparts and, and the Egyptian gods, and they kind of had that same kind of borrowing of storylines. It was a common question that's gained uh, popularity as of late, and it's known as the, the Christ myth. And it basically says that Christ wasn't a real person. Jesus wasn't a real person. It's all myth, and it's, it's made up of uh, taking chunks off of all these previous stories that came before Jesus. And there's books out there, there's some movies out there, and, and they're put together in a very slick way, and it may even seem kind of um, compelling at first. But first of all, it's actually a fairly new theory. Again, you can trace it back, it's roots back to about the 18th century, and uh, these questions of the historicity of Jesus, uh, basically saying, hey, did he really exist as a person, is a fairly new question when we look at uh, his life and everything that's happened since then. But the claim is that, no, it's all made up, and it just parallels other stories. But while we don't have time to really unpack every single claim in there, I just want to take a broad approach at this. What do we make of this Christ myth? One of the main comparisons is the, one of the primary Egyptian gods, Horus. And just different things they say that, okay, here's Horus' story, and look how they just pulled from that to put together Jesus' story. One of the first things they say is that Horus was born of a virgin on December 25th. Uh, well, first of all, if you're familiar with the story of Horus, uh, it's a stretch to say he was born of a virgin. His, his mom, uh, the story goes, uh, Isis and, and his dad, Osiris, uh, were both gods, but Osiris had been destroyed by an enemy and basically torn into pieces, and, and Isis basically took uh, parts of him, hovered over him, and then had uh, Horus, which is, sounds nothing like a virgin birth and just kind of some wild movie or wild story you hear uh, in different uh, myths of, of different gods and whatnot. And this whole being born on the, December 25th, it doesn't really matter if Horus was born on December 25th because Jesus wasn't. I mean, let's just clarify that real quick. While we celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th, when you look at uh, the, the text and you kind of unpack the clues that we see in there, it's more likely he was born uh, September or October. And even when we celebrate today, uh, scholars, no one says that 20, the December 25th was Jesus' birthday. 
It was about in the 4th, 5th century where the Pope said, hey, we want to kind of counteract some of these winter solstice celebrations that you see in different pagan cultures, and so we want to have something to counteract that, and so let's, let's celebrate Jesus' birth on December 25th, even though that wasn't the day he was born. And so you can't say, oh, well, that's why we celebrate on the 25th, is because we're pulling from the story of, Horse, uh, of Horace. It, it simply doesn't hold up. There's a belief that one of the main books on, on this concept of the Christ myth says, oh, that Horace was born in a manger. And honestly, there's no source given. There's no background to back it up. There's other uh, statements that are made that three kings came visiting the birthplace of Horace after following a star. And again, if that truly is the case of Horace's story, um, this fictional character it doesn't really matter because that's not the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus, when you really look at the text, you don't see anything that talks about three kings. We see three wise men, three men. I'm sorry, I take that back. It's, this is how ingrained it is. Even I'm misspeaking as I'm trying to teach you on it. Uh, but it was magi that brought three gifts. It never says there were three of them. It could have been one of them. It could have been 20 of them. We don't know, but there was a, a magi that brought three gifts. We don't know how many of them there were. And, and they weren't there in the manger. They weren't there in the nativity. If you pull out your nativity scene, if you have one at home that probably has a little figurine of the wise men, and if you look at the story, they came about two years later. It was about two years later that they arrived. And so even if that is Horace's story, that's not what was pulled, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't line up with the story of Jesus to say that this is all fictional, all made up. There's also claims uh, about the story of Hor- uh, Horace, that uh, he was a child teacher by age of 12. Uh, he was baptized by one who was later beheaded, just like Jesus was baptized by John, who was later beheaded. These claims are one, one of the authors, Gerald Massey, um, is, is one of a big proponent of this. And, and scholars pressed him on, say, where have you read this? And he said, well, it's one of these old uh, books of antiquity. And they said, well, we, we've gone through that, and it's not in there. He's like, well, I don't really remember where I heard it. And, and that's what people are they're, they're writing books on this stuff, on, on claims. I'm not sure where I got that from. And people are reading these and buying and seeing it as truth when it clearly is not. This, 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 they also would say, oh, well, the, the story of Jesus being crucified and raised after three days is stolen from Horace's story. And again, it's simply not. Most scholars uh, who are familiar with his story say that, that there's no talk of his death at all. In cases where there is talk of his death, uh, he, he was, again, similar to his father, he was torn apart by an enemy and, and thrown into the waters. And the closest thing we have to make a connection about resurrection is that crocodiles pulled his pieces out of the water. And it's like, okay, how do you go from that to seeing, well, that, they use that as inspiration for the Jesus story, and it's all made up. And, and we keep unpacking this. There's even a story of uh, a Roman god, Mithras, who, uh, again, they make similar claims, all these parallels between Mithras and, and Jesus. And, oh, they're just pulling from uh, these ancient stories to make up this myth of, of Christ. And it's simply not true. The, the, the earliest recording we have of the stories of Mithras come 200 years after the Gospels were written. So if anything, they pulled that story from the story, the real story of Jesus. What's interesting is the more you unpack the story, this, this, this modern uh, uh, uprising of this Christ myth, it just doesn't hold weight. Uh, honestly, uh, as you look through the just other people's responses, there, there's no legitimate scholar who gives any validity to this concept. Even those who don't believe Jesus is God. There are scholars who have studied all this, and they, they've come to the conclusion on their own that they say, I don't believe that Jesus was God, but they don't question that he existed. So even those who would be adversaries of Jesus still say it's nonsense to say he didn't exist. Again, if this is something that you really struggle with, I'm not expecting that you would just take my word for it up here. 
But I hope that this would encourage you to dig in some more and, and kind of look at the evidence and look for that source material and say, okay, does this argument hold weight? Because it really doesn't. That it was made up, that it, the story of Christ was fictional doesn't hold any water. Just the opposite. We see all the evidence points us towards Jesus existing, being a real person, making the claims that he made, and doing the things that he did. There's at least 10 different first century historians outside of the Bible who mention Jesus, and many of them aren't in favorable ways. These are people who aren't, they don't want to keep the story going because uh, they're at odds with him, and yet they validate who he is, who he was, and that he existed. And so again, if you struggle with this concept, did Jesus exist, I would encourage you to come to just to dig in more to see, wow, he, I think he did. One of the things, you stand back a little bit and look at history as a whole, over 400 years went from one man and his 12 disciples to over 56% of the Roman world following Christ. Why? Because it was the life of the disciples. It was the life of those who had seen firsthand both uh, Jesus in the flesh, uh, doing miracles and, and sharing about who he is and who, uh, what he was going to do. They saw him go to the cross and die, and then they saw the empty tomb. And beyond seeing the empty tomb, they saw in the flesh the risen Jesus to the point where it didn't matter what you threatened to do to them, they were not going to deny Christ. Not only that, but they had to make his name known because they knew what was true. They had seen it with their own eyes. And so when we understand those things as well. We take all those into consideration. It begins to build this very strong argument that, yes, Jesus was real. One of the things that I love about God, you know, sometimes people push back on Christians, oh, you just want us to take all this by faith. Faith is a piece of it because we don't have, you know, there's always hard questions to work through, and that's of, of any uh, stance you want to take. And honestly, it takes the least amount of faith to believe in Jesus, in my opinion, when you, when you look at all the different evidence uh, of what is true out there. Because God has given us all kinds of evidence. He's given us all kinds of support that we can see in the pages of history, that we can see in creation, that we can see in the world around us, that we can see in the life change that happens in the lives of others who surrender their life to Christ. The disciples were willing to die for Jesus, but they were also willing to live for him. You see a dramatic change in their life. To go from where they were fishermen, tax collectors, to apostles and preachers as the church grew. I'm going to take a quick tangent on this. Uh, this year, one of the, 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 uh, one of the visions we set out as a church was to be about for the good of blank, for the good of others and for God's glory, to live our lives in such a way that we are living for the good of others, that others would come to hear the gospel. And I, I would encourage you to be thinking on what is in that blank for you. What is your mission field is, in essence, the question I'm asking. Maybe for some of that team that just came back, one of their blanks is, for the good of Haiti, for the good of, of the people that we came across. I want to live in a way that is for their good, that they could hear the gospel. Maybe your story is more local. Maybe it's, hey, for the good of my next-door neighbor, Jeremy, Jerry, whatever. You got a next-door neighbor named Jeremy or Jerry? It's the Holy Spirit working, I guess, but I don't know. Um, for the good of my neighbor, I'm going to live this way. I'm going to welcome them into my house. I'm going to share the gospel of Jesus with them. Maybe it's a whole community. Maybe it's an organization. But where has God called you? Where has God put you that you already have influence, that you could just turn your focus a little bit and say, hey, this isn't just about uh, having a sport team for my kids or about 
getting an education, has been engaged in the school about knowing my kids' teachers. But this is about wherever I go, wherever God puts us, that I can make an impact for him. Because, one, I believe he was real. So did God exist? Did Jesus exist? Yeah, you got, we can believe that. With, look at the evidence. We can believe it. Yes, he did. Another question we can then ask is, okay, so maybe he did exist, but was he really God? Did, did Jesus even claim to be God? That's maybe one of the, the, the responses I hear often. Okay, well, well, did Jesus even claim to be God himself? I think a lot of times when people are asking this question, uh, they won't be satisfied unless we can show a passage in Scripture where Jesus says, I am God. In those words, in that tone. And, and I'll be honest with you, I have no problem being transparent in this. You don't see those three words in that order, I am God, from Jesus' mouth. He may have said it, but it wasn't recorded in Scripture. Does that mean, oh, he's not, he's not God then? Well, no, again, let, let's pause here for a minute. It doesn't take very long to look at the evidence and to see who he is. It's also interesting, before we even get there, if we pause and acknowledge the fact that if he were to say, I am God, in that culture, that may not have raised as many eyebrows as what he did say. There were some in that culture, uh, that, that, actually many, except for the Jews, who were pantheistic, meaning that they, they believed in multiple gods. And for someone to say, hey, I'm just another god. All right, dude, whatever. They just would have lumped them in with, okay, we got to well, add one more to the pile. Okay, I guess we got to make a Jesus idol too now because he says he's a god. You know, and so that may not have raised that many eyebrows when we start looking beyond the Jews. Some even would have seen... Uh, uh, had a belief where they said, okay, we're all, there's a little bit of God in all of us, right? And so you had these beliefs that, that were present in that day and age, and so Jesus came with a very clear statement of who he was. We need to look at the cultural context in which, was, what was going on when Jesus walked the earth and what he claimed to be. Uh, the Jews were a monotheistic culture. They said, there is one God, the one true God, that is who we follow. That is who we uh, surrender our lives to, the Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. And it's in this context that uh, Jesus comes in, and he doesn't just claim to be God. He claims to be that God, the one true God, the God who has always been and who always will be, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Jewish people. That's who he claims to be. See, the Jews would have been very familiar with the story of Moses. If you're not familiar with the story of Moses, there's a time in Moses' life where God speaks to him through a burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Uh, but prior to this, God is calling Moses to go and be used by God to set his people free. His nation, his people are in captivity, in slavery, and he is using Moses to go and set them free. Moses has a quick question. Okay, God, so you want me to go to Pharaoh, someone who could take my life in an instant. You want me to go stand before him as your uh, adversary and say, hey, I'm sorry, as your uh, um, representative and say, okay, hey, the one true God says, let all your slaves go. Let the Jews go. One question they may ask is, who is your God? Again, he's speaking to uh, the Egyptians, a, a, a pantheistic culture. Oh, there's all kinds of gods. Let, let, let's match them up. Okay, who, who's your God that, that gives you this authority? And so Moses asked God, who should I say you are? Who should I say you are? This is a response he get in, in, in chapter 3, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so 
when Jesus comes on the scene into a Jewish culture, Jewish context, he knows the people will be very familiar with this story. They'll be very familiar with the name of God, I am. For God always has been, is, and always will be. And so all of a sudden, the Jews are, are questioning Jesus about who he's claiming to be. In John chapter 8, 58, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you don't know that context, you may read it right past it. Okay, that's kind of a weird answer. But all of a sudden, we realize, no, that this is the name of the one true God. And not only is he using the name of the one true God, he's saying, hey, before Abraham was, I am. He's establishing himself not as a created God, not as another idol to add to the mantle, but he's saying, hey, no, I've always been, I always will be. Before Abraham even walked this earth, I was there because I am. You may say, okay, Steve, I'm not sure I'm buying this yet. Okay, well, let's look at the response of his audience. What does his audience think he's saying? John 8, 59. So they picked up teddy bears and hugged him. No, wait, Sorry. Uh, They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They picked up stones to throw at him, not to say, hey, here, have a rock, but to try to kill him. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And that was such a statement of blasphemy to them. They heard that as he is claiming to be God. And that was blasphemy to them, because they didn't believe it to be true. So they picked up stones to kill him. We can go ahead two chapters in John's Gospel. John chapter 10, verse 22, we see a similar story unfold. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So say, we want to know, are you the Christ, Jesus? Is this who you are? Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. I love this. You say, you've already seen what I can do. I've already made this known to you, but you don't want to believe. See, I think a lot of these people are falling into that second category about being troubled by the story of Jesus. Obviously, they're not going to be troubled by the story of does he really exist because he's right there in front of them. But they're, they're troubled by the, well, if he's the Christ, what does that mean for my life? What does that mean for me? Do I have to make a, a surrender to him? Do I have to acknowledge him as God and as king? And so trying to find ways to discredit him. Oh, well, okay. I'm sure you, you did some neat stuff, but are you going to tell us? You know, come clean. Let us know if it's true or not. Are you the Christ? And he's like, I, I've already shown you. I'm reminded of the story where there's a, a crippled man, a paralytic, and his friends want to bring him to Jesus. And they're so determined to get their friend to Jesus. He's in this house meeting with a bunch of people, and it's standing room only. And they say, hey, we can't get to the doors. We can't even get to the windows. But you know what we can do? We can put a hole in the roof. And so they say, all right, let's do it. And they get their climbing gear, and they get their shovels, whatever, pickaxe, however they're going to dig a hole through this roof. And they get up on the roof. They hoist up their paralytic friend. They cut a hole in the roof. And I just, I, this story just has always blown my mind because you've got to wonder at what point someone's looking up like, um, Jesus is still preaching, but we should take care of that. But all of a sudden, this, this, this man on a mat is lowered down through this opening that just opened up in the roof. And what does Jesus do? He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has, has healed. Has, your sins are forgiven. And that was something that, in that culture, in that context, they would say, that's something only God can do. Who are you to forgive this man's sins? And that's what they did. And so Jesus' response to them was this. What is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? And he says to the paralytic, take your mat, pick it up, and go. 
and he gets up, and he's instantly healed. And so here he's claiming to be God by saying your, your sins are forgiven, and, and he's showing his power in that by, saying, by healing this paralytic who just had to be lowered in the, through the roof on a mat is now just standing up, picking up his mat, and he's good to go. So that's what he said. I've already told you, you know who I am. John 10, 26, they continue, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I think maybe for some of us here today, that might kind of sting a little bit. That they were unwilling to see Jesus for who he really was, I think because they didn't want to surrender their lives to him. Can you, can you relate to that at all? He says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Again, here's another statement he's going to make about being God. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And again, what is the response of the people? Because that's going to tell us that's going to give us the clues to the context. Is he saying the words, I am God, not those specific words? Is he making that claim? You better believe it. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I, I've shown you the power of the Father that I have because I and the Father are one. I've done all these great things. Which one of these? Was it the healing of the blind man? Was it healing the paralytic? Was it turning water into wine? Because I know you're still digging that one. Which one is he going to stone me for? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. We don't have an issue with any of those neat things you've done, Jesus. But for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And we can keep going. There's all kinds of accounts like this in Jesus where others are either making claims about him and he's not correcting them because he's like, you're right, I am God. And here they're saying, hey, we want to stone you because you're making claims to be God. And rightfully so, that is what he is making. But what they're missing is that he is God. If you still struggle with this, I, I encourage you to come back on our Good Friday and Easter celebration as we celebrate the truth of the risen Jesus. I think that is one of the greatest examples of the fact that he is God. Not only was he raised from the dead, but he rose from the dead. He rose himself from the dead. He overcame death because he is God. You make yourself God. Without a doubt, the words and actions of Jesus were seen as claims to be God. Many had seen and heard Jesus, and yet they still not, they didn't believe. And for some, that might be discouraging. So here's other people who saw Jesus do all these things, and they didn't believe. So what am I to make of that? Well, I think we, we get a glimpse of that. We've already kind of hit on this a little bit. It says, hey, you were not of my sheep. Well, what, what, what do sheep do? They follow their shepherd, right? They follow their shepherd. I think that's all he's trying to tell them is, you're unwilling to follow me. And see, I think that's why for many of us, if you don't struggle with the, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth that he existed, the truth that he made claims to be God, the truth that he showed himself to be God, if, you don't, if you're not troubled by that, I think where the troubling part comes in for many of us is we're troubled by the call to follow. We struggle with this call to follow God. We think, oh, I need more information. I need to see more miracles. I need to learn more about this. And yes, let's walk down those roads together, but let's not make that a prerequisite for following the God who's already shown himself to be God. If you're at a point in your life where you're not sure if Jesus is truth or myth, I would ask of you to continue to pursue a quest for truth. 
Don't be afraid to ask big questions. Engage God with your doubts. If this is where you're at, let's walk this road together. For those who even know the truth that Jesus is God, let's continue to be seekers of truth. We don't need to be afraid of difficult questions. We don't need to be afraid of doubts because our God has made himself known. For those of us who are troubled by this call to follow, let's just acknowledge it what it is. It's a call to surrender, right? It's a call where we say, my plans are no longer my own, but God's got a plan for my life. And it's a part of that that's difficult to make that transition, right? Well, but I want to do this. What if God doesn't call me to go into this direction in my life or that direction in my life? And we struggle through all these things. Maybe you just heard these stories of Haiti and you're like, I want to follow God, but what if he calls me to Haiti? That, that seemed real difficult, real tough. If you're struggling with that, I would encourage you to connect with any one of those people who went and ask them, how has your life changed? How has God moved in you? And then ask this last question, would you trade it? Would you give it back? Would you say, you know what, I wish I hadn't gone? Anyone, whether it be the team that went to Haiti or anyone who stepped out in faith and followed where God has led, you see life, you see joy, you see peace. And this is more than just direction in life. This is how we handle our relationships. If you got a marriage that's on the rocks right now or you're just maybe struggling with joy or you just you feel like you're just in the same house doing the life together but you're not really growing in anything, I would encourage you to seek out either through scripture, through, through another uh, a Christian couple or individuals you can trust who will point you to God's word or in prayer together. Seek out God's heart for your marriage and be willing to say, I will follow. And see if he will not take you on a journey that will fill your life with such life, joy, peace, compassion as you get to witness God working in your life and through your life. As you begin to not only have your own stories of life change and testimonies of the work of God, but you begin to have stories of your friends and your loved ones and your neighbor's name, Jeremy, or Jerry, or whatever his name was. Coming to Christ, and you see their lives being changed for the better. As we just live out this real call to love others. So what's next? Well, I think sometimes we try to dismiss Jesus because if we dismiss him, we don't have to follow. Uh, I think another way we try to do that is we look at the difficulty of this world and we try to blame that on God. We say, God, you can't be a good, loving God because look at the mess down here. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to address this issue of, of, of evil in our world. I think we're going to have to look a hard, take a hard look at ourselves to see, hang on a sec, is this God's doing or is this our own? This is our own choices that have led us to this place. We're going to talk about that next week. And so if you struggle with the issue of evil, I encourage you to come back next week. Uh, but for those who want to take steps forward, who want to say, I want to follow, first thing I encourage you to do, receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you've not done that, receive him as your Lord and Savior. It, it, there's no uh, magic words you have to say. It's simply a, a prayer to God. Just confess your position before him that you are a sinner, that you're in need of, of forgiveness. Acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, that, he, uh, that you want to make him the leader of your life and the forgiver of your sins, that you believe he is God, and ask for his forgiveness. And when you do that, 
our filth, our garbage, our sin is taken off of us and it's put upon Jesus and that's paid for at the cross through his sacrifice and his righteousness is put upon us so that when God in heaven sees us, those who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, he sees the very righteousness of Jesus. And if you're not ready to take that step yet today, why not? I'm not trying to press you. What, what, what about Jesus troubles you that you're not willing to follow? Seek to answer that question, and then let's walk that road together. I'd love to walk that road with you. We have others here who love to be in community together. So next steps, receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Get baptized. Take that step of obedience. Part of following Jesus is obeying what he calls us to do. I had an example like this this week where it was very clear that God was leading me down a certain path uh, to a certain uh, decision that was to be made, and I didn't know how to do it. I, I clearly had a conversation with God. I see your will, and I don't know how to do it. So here's my answer, God. Yes, I'll say yes to you, but it's on you for the rest, because I'm lost. And holy cow, did he stretch my faith, and did he come through and show himself so powerful? And so every little step of obedience we can take, whether we do it in confidence or out of sheer terror, saying, God, I don't know how to do this, but I see you call me towards it, so I'll say yes, Every step of obedience grows and strengthens our faith and our foundation on Jesus. And so if you're a follower and have not been baptized yet, let that be a step of obedience where you say, okay, God, there's still parts of it that kind of weird me out. I'm a little unsure about it. I don't know. I said, but you know what? I will answer your call to obedience. I will follow you, and I'll be baptized this Easter. One last invitation I make uh, for us all is that if you're not already, to enter into a Christian community with someone else. Yes, we have that here in a general sense, but I'm saying someone that you're sitting across each other's tables. You're in each other's homes, in each other's lives. When things get messy, they're the ones that are getting messy too because you're walking together in life. When things are amazing, they're the ones bringing a cake over to say, hey, let's celebrate. Enter into that community, not just because there's people that you like. And there's a lot of cool people here at Meadowland. If you hadn't had a chance to meet some of them, I'd invite you to do just that. It's not just because they're people we like, but it's people who are on mission for God, who want to love him and obey him. And we gather together and encourage each other in that. That will encourage you in your journey to walk on, on mission with God, wherever he sent you to be about the good of others and to give glory to God. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you've made yourself known so that we don't have to just simply rely on blind faith Yes, there's an element of faith, an element of following. But you've shown yourself to be who you are. You've made it known that you are God, Jesus. You've made it known that you existed. That we can know and believe your story to be true. Father, I pray for those who know you and who are walking with you, that you would be such an encouragement to us to take next steps of obedience, that we would follow you in new ways, Father God. And for those here who maybe don't know you, that we take that first step of obedience, of surrendering our lives to you. Even if there's parts of you that still trouble us, that we still uh, uh, struggle with, Father God, help us to follow you, to stand on the evidence you've made yourself known in, to step out in faith, trusting that you will do what you claim to do in our lives, that you will walk with us, that you will lead us, that you will be our joy, our peace, our comfort. 
Help us to be on mission wherever we are, Father God, in this world. Wherever you sent us, whatever neighborhood, whatever house, whatever neighbors we have, whatever uh, family that is in our home with us, whatever organizations and community groups that we're a part of, whatever community we call home, Father, wherever our tribe is, stir in us a desire to share you with them for their good and for your glory. Pray us all in your name.